life hacking ethical hedonism. Unleash edification by succumbing to sustainable pleasure. Hey, I'm Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and there's this piece of advice that people who are a little bit older often give to people who are a little bit younger. A lot of times it's a person who's like, they're in their 30s, they're in their 40s, maybe they're even advanced a bit more in age beyond that, and they are typically giving this piece of advice to someone who's like in their 20s or someone who's maybe 18, 19 years old. And I think it's a really dumb piece of advice, and I'm sure you have heard this. Maybe, you, maybe you've even given this piece of advice that I think is pretty dumb, and I'll explain why. And so the older person will say, you know, I regret that when I was in my 20s, I, I regret the bad decisions that I made pursuing pleasure. I regret that I uh, drank too much, the, the drugs I did, the partying I did, the, 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 the sex, the, they'll name off all these bad decisions that they made or bad habits that they might have had and they succumbed to, uh, they succumbed to the siren song of cheap thrills and impulsiveness in living in a hedonistic kind of way. And then that old person will, that older person will say, and now I have all these problems because I succumbed to all those pleasures that the world offered up to me. Now I'm in bad health. I don't have as much money. I wasted all my money. I have shitty relationships. I've got uh, I've got a child with an ex-wife or an ex-husband or a baby's mama or a baby's daddy. That's an awful relationship. And they'll say, "Don't do, don't do this. This prioritizing and this uh, succumbing to all these these pleasures that are dangled before you." Don't, don't, don't do that. Live, live your life in a little bit more puritanical kind of way. When you're in your 20s and, oh, you'll, you'll, you'll do so much better when you're later on in life. You'll, you won't have all these regrets that I have. Okay, so this piece of advice, I am sure you have heard it, especially if you're a younger person. And I think it's dumb advice uh, primarily because it's just not effective. I, I don't think this advice motivates very many young people to, to not go to that awesome party or to not have that uh, fifth shot of tequila that results in some crazy thing happening. I, I don't think this is uh, averting very many of these the kinds of disasters that the uh, elder 
slightly more wise, perhaps more wise person is trying to give to the younger person. And for those of you who have read my books, you will know that in my 20s particularly, and then in my 30s, I have lived up and carried on a pretty hedonistic kind of experience. Uh, pretty much all the awesome, fun, hedonistic things that uh, songs are uh, sung about. I, I have indulged in most of those things and in a lot of cases indulged to excess. I have had sex in a brand new Maserati. Um, there has been yeah, I've had uh, a lot of great episodes. I will on my uh, on on my deathbed one day, many 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 years from now, perhaps uh, centuries from now, if all this anti aging stuff that I do works out, I will go to my deathbed with uh, a smile on my face with all the memories that I have got, and. Unlike a lot of people, unlike a lot of these people, a little bit older people who are giving you this uh, tired, bland advice of, of not succumbing to pleasure so much, unlike a lot of them, nothing really bad ever happened to me as a result of indulging in the pleasures of life. Uh, nothing really terrible ever happened to me. My serious regrets that I have, uh, maybe uh, there's just a few of those. I really don't have to grapple with a whole lot of regret as a result of enjoying life. And there's something else. So, of course, like you, probably, like uh, most people that succumb to pleasure, that enjoy life, that have uh, had some real crazy nights and days and mornings sometimes. I, there was other people that were involved. There was friends and there was a whole uh, constellation of friends and acquaintances and uh, influences that were involved and implicated with uh, my past, uh, with the hedonism of my past. And some of those people, some of the people who were very closest to me, they're now dead. That's right. Some people who were uh, same age as me, they're in the ground now. And perusing Facebook and social media and staying in touch a little bit with some of those people, a lot of them have pretty boring kind of shitty uneventful lives now. And in a lot of cases, there's a lot of causality in between all of that hedonism that we enjoyed together, those great memories, and their mediocrity now. Or in one particular case, them being dead now. Rest in peace, I guess. And so what's the big difference here? Well, the difference is ethical hedonism. 
a philosophy that I am going to break all the way down for you in this podcast. And this is an update of an article that I wrote quite a while back, and you can find it below wherever you are watching or listening to this podcast over on LimitlessMindset.com. Do check out the article because I've got kind of some cool uh, graphics and photos in it to go along with everything that I'm talking about here. And I felt the need to give a little bit of an updated version of this podcast. The uh, the old podcast version of this was uh, not the greatest audio quality, and I'm trying to bring to you a pristine listening experience. And then I wanted to just interject a little bit more of the uh, wisdom that I have accrued in the time since I first wrote this article. And this is a really great philosophical uh, concept that I'd like you to first wrap your mind around it. And then I hope that you can behaviorally implement it. And as I mentioned, this will be a thing where you will unleash edification and self-improvement by succumbing to sustainable pleasure. That's that's an idea that I hope sticks with you. Sustainable pleasure. So let's dive into the article, which will explore the millenniums old yet rarely practiced mindset of ethical hedonism. And then we're going to explore its biological implications. So the core belief of hedonism is that people should do everything in their power to achieve the maximum amount of pleasure. That sounds good, right? It is also the idea that every person's pleasure should far surpass their amount of pain. So when we think of hedonism, we usually think of sexy time. We think of drugs. We think of decadent desserts. We think of partying. And I've got a great photo of me once upon a time partying in Medellin, Colombia with a bunch of uh, crazy Irish tourists. We think of, uh, yeah, we think of all sorts of all sorts of sex, that whole galaxy of uh, good horizontal times that we can have in a bedroom or elsewhere. We think of uh, travel. We think of making new friends. We think of smoking things, uh, cigarettes, uh, smoking weed, whatever you want to smoke that you enjoy. We think of booze and alcohol. And I've got a picture of four Patron Red Bull doubles, which is, that used to be my go-to drink that I would enjoy. I'm not sure if that one qualifies as ethical hedonism. We think of, uh, I've got a photo here of beer and some cigars. I've got a photo of my favorite kind of beer in the whole wide world. And I almost never get to drink this beer because I can't get it here. It's called 1554. And it was a Belgian ale that had this really subtle chocolatey aftertaste to it. A really subtle chocolate aftertaste to it. 
ah, that was amazing stuff. We think of uh, party drugs, cocaine, ecstasy. We think of uh, all the crazy ways that you can waste money in a nightclub or disco. I think of uh, all the nights of my life that we got bottle service at nightclubs. These are all the things that we that come to mind when we think of hedonism. Um, and they are, of course, enjoyable. That's why we spend our time, money, and brain cells. We waste our, we kill our brain cells. But, of course, uh, these things are self-destructive. Um, or they are at least kind of irresponsible and juvenile in the way that a lot of people indulge in them. And we get massive spikes of the feel-good neurotransmitters, serotonin and dopamine, from them. Uh, dopamine. Uh, that's why we say, hey, that party was dope, or that DJ was dope, because we're getting dopamine out of it. Let's talk about the history of ethical hedonism. It was a philosophy first articulated by Aristippus of Cyrene, who was a pupil of Socrates. And Arist Aristippus wasn't a big believer in the afterlife. So he figured that as long as you were above ground, you might as well be enjoying yourself. He held the idea that pleasure is the highest good in the world. <laughs> That's an appealing idea, right? Not hard to sell people on that one. The other students of Socrates believed that the greatest good was to contribute to society, to seek self-knowledge, to understand the natural world, those kind of things. But Aristippus was like, F that noise. The greatest good is to get wasted on wine and have an orgy with a bunch of hot young Greeks, right? Maybe the other uh, students there. He believed that pleasure was the ultimate good. And I somewhat agree with that. I somewhat agree with that. Which brings us to ethical hedonism. And this is the idea that we should have a dual focus on maximizing pleasure and doing what is ethical. Therefore, an ethical hedonist is a person who seeks to maximize their own pleasure, but only if it's morally right to do so, uh, independent of uh, kind of arbitrary systems of belief. A hedonist is always looking to get the biggest bang for their buck, but they will sacrifice the lesser pleasure for the greater pleasure. Let me repeat that point. It's pretty important. The ethical hedonist, they're trying to get the biggest bang for their buck in the hedonism pleasure department, but, 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 they will sacrifice the lesser pleasure for the greater pleasure. So I'm going to give you some examples of this that will make this a uh, practical, uh, actionable kind of take away. But first, I want you to completely grasp the philosophy. The reason why this is such a life hack is that by 
prioritizing ethics, you actually get to be way more hedonistic, both in quantity and quality. That one's also worth repeating. By prioritizing ethics and uh, some common sense and thinking about the future, sustainability, you actually get to be way more hedonistic, both in quantity and quality, than someone who just embraces hedonism for the sporadic and fleeting spikes of serotonin and dopamine. As human beings, we tend to moralize our behaviors into good and bad behaviors. Most of us, maybe this is changing, many of us are raised in some kind of religious system. And in the religious paradigm of ethics, hedonistic activities and ethical activities are often on the opposing sides of the spectrum or at least that's kind of that's kind of the impression that you emerge from if you come out of a religious sort of upbringing if you delve a bit deeper into uh the bible for example that's the one that i'm really familiar with you'll find that there's more shades of gray in there you'll find actually there's a lot of places in the bible where it's encouraging people to enjoy all the pleasures and all the the beauty of this this world that god has prepared for us but even if we aren't religious, we still probably see the world through a filter of black and white ethics. Anyone raised in North America, South America, Europe, Australia, the, the Western world comes from a moral system that tends to put abstinence of hedonistic activities on a moral pedestal. But in the paradigm that Aristippus suggests, hedonistic activities and ethical activities are right next to each other on the same side of the spectrum. That's pretty awesome, right? So let's get into the practical examples. First of all, let's go to the one that everybody, of course, thinks about. Sex. When... I was younger, some of the guys I was friends with, uh, a lot of those guys that I mentioned that aren't doing so great these days, or <laughs> one of them is dead, a lot of those guys, in retrospect, had, in, in through my view of the past, with a bit more knowledge and experience now, they had very unethical, hedonistic sex lives. They were proud of having casual, and even unprotected sex with a lot of different partners. They would commit to being one young lady's boyfriend so that they could have all the unprotected sex they wanted with her. And then when we were having a guy's night out, after just a few drinks, they would start trying to hook up with other ladies, sometimes successfully. Pretty unethical, but you could also say pretty standard male behavior. And 
staying in touch just a little bit with some of these guys and uh, seeing them on Facebook every once in a while, what I see is that almost all of them, as a result, now have a lot of limited freedom uh, and limited freedom in their sex lives. A lot of them have kids. Some of them are single parents. Some of them have crazy stress and financial commitment to the women that they made babies with. A lot of them are committed in one way or another to mediocre women. And some of them have confided in me that they have spent thousands of dollars on abortions over the years, which is pretty awful. And what did I do differently? Well, I almost always used condoms. Along with the tantric semen retention and uh, other sex hacks, I link to those. I've got a actually a lot of content on that subject. For those of you who are curious, you can find that through the article. And during this time, I was never a serial monogamist. I would tell ladies on the first or second date that I was, yeah, that I was not so much into having long-term relationships. I would kind of set the expectation uh, realistically as much as possible. And as a result of being certainly more ethical than the friends, than the guys that surrounded me, that did influence me sometimes for the negative, as a result of being a bit more ethical, I retained a lot of freedom in my sex life. I retained that freedom for as long as I wanted it. And then I got into a really great relationship with my wife here in Bulgaria. And then we got married. And then I, uh, and, and, and now I have uh, purposefully, uh, purposely I have a lot of barriers in my sex life and in my own sexuality, even in my own mind. I have barriers to my self-imposed, might I add, barriers to my sexuality. And what this does is it just enables me to sustain and maintain a really great sex life with my wife. We are having great sex now, even after we have been together for five years. So I think that I have ultimately kind of uh, gotten the best result. I think that I'm, while my friends may have seemingly been having more fun back in the day, doing the stupid stuff they were doing, I think I'm the one that's ended up having a lot more great sex. Okay, next example is booze, alcohol. And this one is, I'm going to say, actually kind of a gray area as far as ethical hedonistic activities go. I've gone completely sober for periods of up to six months while leading a very active social life, which has been awesome. It saved me a ton of money a bunch of hangovers, and it's taught me to draw state from within 
as opposed to relying on booze to make me social. Sobriety is really a life hack for more hedonism. That's going to sound surprising, perhaps, but once you try it and do an extended period of no booze, you'll experience it for yourself because as you're spending less money and you don't have a hangover, which is robbing the productivity from the next day, you are able to go out and socialize more. You're able to party more, probably twice as much, which let's say you're a social person in your 20s. I I have no problem with partying a lot. You're going to go out. You're going to meet a lot of people. You're going to learn all these different social skills that are going to benefit you in a myriad of ways for the rest of your life. You're going to do networking, which is going to be beneficial to your career and professional development. I suggest to people who are younger and single that they, yeah, party a bit. Uh, Don't maybe don't party with terrible people in terrible high risk kinds of places, but yeah, get out there and meet a lot of people. And when you do that, along with a a one-month, two-month, three-month, six-month period of sobriety along with it, oh, that becomes really sustainable. You're not draining your wallet and, and feeling hungover and awful half of the time. Here's a question that some people are certainly asking, though, which is, can an ethical hedonist be a drinker? And I think you can. And here's why. I've done a couple of podcast episodes on biohacking boozing. I do link to those. I do urge you to go and listen to those. And these podcasts break down how to block alcohol from turning into acetylhyde in your body. The acetylhyde is really what is biologically unethical and does damage to your system and gives you a hangover. In these podcasts, and there's two of them, I reveal what kind of alcohol is the closest to a neutral health impact. And it might not be what you expect. So go check that out. I'm going to leave that as a tantalizing little offer out there to you as opposed to just telling you now. And I also tell which alcohol, which kinds of alcohol you should probably avoid completely. There's a specific cocktail of supplements that you need to take to achieve something approaching a net zero health impact of drinking alcohol. And it really doesn't cost very much money, probably close to about 15 cents per drink. So in the same way that uh, that we can have our sex lives be an ethical thing, if we're protecting our bodies properly and protecting everyone's emotions and emotional uh, investment with proper expectations set, I think that alcohol consumption can be an ethically hedonistic activity. 
for me, it has often in my life been a whole lot simpler, cheaper, and more fun, more hedonistic to not drink. But eventually, I will finish my phase of intermittent sobriety, and then I'll drink again. I, I enjoy European-style craft beers, red wine, and cocktails. And after I have abstained for months, it's it's really a novel hedonistic experience to drink uh, again. It's not this boring thing that you do every weekend. It's it's something that you uh, yeah, that it's an exciting thing to do. Next, I will let's talk about drugs, big area of hedonism, of course. And this is also a gray area, but I'm going to say it's a whole lot darker gray area. It is most, mostly a domain of unethical hedonism because drugs can do such serious uh, damage to your body and mind, and they are also pretty bad for society. And you can probably see how they are bad for some of the people around you. You don't need to think very long to come up with an example of someone you knew personally that had their life ruined or ended by drugs. In some cases, drugs don't even fit into the classical definition of hedonism either. For example, if you smoke weed all the time, you are probably going to spend hours sitting in front of your uh, TV just watching dumb Netflix shows or streaming things, and you are choosing the lesser pleasure then of watching TV and mindless entertainment over the greater pleasure, which could be going out, socializing, doing something adventuresome with your leisure time. Is there any way that drug use could be ethically hedonistic? Well, here we get into uh, the whole moral quandary of whether certain drugs have a net positive or net negative effect on society. I'm from Colorado, and you probably know Colorado is a state, one of the first states that legalized marijuana. And that has put a lot of criminal drug dealers out of business. It dramatically improved the quality, quality of the product, lowered the price, it created uh, jobs, and kept a bunch of people out of jail. So if you are consuming marijuana that you bought at a dispensary in Colorado or another place where it is legalized, I think we can agree that that's ethically hedonistic. On the other end of the spectrum would be something like buying cocaine on the street from a street dealer. This is something that's going to do massive damage to your body, in mind. You don't know exactly what you're buying, what it's cut with, what the production process was. If you ever want to be disgusted, go and look up the production process for cocaine. It's uh, pretty ghastly, uh, literally ghastly. There's a lot of gasoline involved. The, the product 
is an economic driver of a massive predatory criminal enterprise, and there's this uh, awful history of violence, kidnapping, all the awfulness in the world is economically attached to uh, the purchase of that sort of thing. Next, let's talk about partying. Be it at a bar, beach, nightclub, house party, or just in the middle of the street, I think energizing, energizing, energetic socializing is, I think it's a pretty good idea. And on a more meta level, partying is a training activity for social muscles that will serve you well in virtually every area of your life. I party whenever I get the chance. And I was talking about the sobriety earlier. And doing intermittent periods of sobriety, uh, taking a month, two months, three months off of booze, this is like creatine for your social muscles. And here's why. What most people do when they want to party, it kind of goes like this. They sit around with their friends for an hour, start drinking and making inside jokes. After about an hour or maybe three drinks, they start feeling social and they may start talking to other people. And then after about two to three hours, everyone is sufficiently loosened up by the booze and there will be a party. Also, sometimes not. Sometimes, uh, yeah, sometimes things devolve. Sometimes things don't go, don't go well after everyone's loosened up. I'm sure you've experienced that. Uh, you will hear people describe a party they went to as really clicky, where the individual uh, social groups of the party just never got over the initial awkwardness of interacting with strangers. Sometimes booze backfires and it doesn't serve you socially. Sobriety is a different experience though. A lot of times uh, I would walk into a venue or a party after work, after being in a completely logical problem-solving mindset for eight hours. And that kind of logical workaholic mindset doesn't serve you well when you are trying to party. So you have to learn to create the party in your own head and lead those around you to it. And you may think, but being sober is boring. I have so much more fun drinking. Well, the first two weeks of a sober trip is kind of rough. But after socializing sober for about two weeks, you forget what it feels like to be drunk, or at least it's not quite so such a vivid uh, track that you feel you need to get into. Your hedonic treadmill readjusts itself, and you have just as much fun sober as you used to completely drunk. Next, let's talk about food. Not everybody parties every bit every day. Not everybody gets laid every day, but we all eat 
every day. And a lot of us do it impulsively and emotionally. Food is probably the greatest source of pleasure for most people, for most people out there. Food high in sugar and processed carbs reprogram our minds to be highly dependent on them for the neurotransmitters that make us feel okay about the world and ourselves. Many of these kinds of foods are unethical or unsustainable in multiple dimensions. First of all, they're bad for our bodies. In the short term, they rob us of productivity, energy, creativity, libido, and good sleep, along with being a serious negative influence on stress management. In the long term, they cause obesity, heart disease, premature aging, and death. And those health problems extend to the rest of society in the forms of insurance premiums being raised on everyone, healthcare taxes that hurt small businesses and job creation, along with gargantuan parasitical industries of hospitals, medical devices, and pharmaceutical companies that have vested interests in keeping people sick. In a lot of cases, they are bad for society as a whole. Like in Colombia, where I used to live, the South American Coca-Cola company would actually work with the narco groups in the country to kill and torture their own employees if they tried to form unions or organize for fair working conditions in the plants. And there are two documentaries on that that I link to. You might want to check those out if you're the kind of person that enjoys uh, documentaries on, uh, on, on these different subjects. And then final, finally, a lot of the foods that aren't healthy for you involve the large-scale unethical treatment of animals, those horrific factory farming uh, conditions that I, I think we can agree we would all just love to see those type of conditions uh, banished from the world. And the classical, the classic justification people use with food is that I'd rather enjoy a hedonistic diet now and I'll just pay the price later. The pleasure of eating whatever I want is, it's worth it. And this hubris-filled attitude is best captured by a recent quote from the unofficial Goldman Sachs Guide to Being a Man. They wrote, It's okay to trade the possibility of your 80s and 90s for more guaranteed fun in your 20s and 30s. And I think that's the way a lot of people feel. The big secret about ethical hedonism and food is that if you completely cut the bad stuff, so cut out the gluten, the processed carbs, the, the sugar, all that crap, uh, those poofa oils, if you completely cut that stuff and you do your very best to eat the good stuff, 
you go organic, go paleo, um, you get real selective. After about two weeks, well, that was my experience. That's a lot of people's experience. But sometimes it takes longer. Sometimes it takes months. But after not that much time, you start to not want the junk food, the unhealthy stuff. You no longer have a gut reaction of primal desire when you see a piece of cake or a fried goodie. You'll have to deal with occasional moments of temptation, but you've upgraded your operating system and will increasingly find yourself making good dietary decisions on autopilot. We really are what we eat. What we fuel our bodies and minds with really does define the amount of energy we have to enjoy life, which is why I originally entitled this article, Be the Rockstar Forever. Ethical hedonism increases the quantity and quality of the pleasure you experience sustainable. You can keep doing what makes you happy for as long as you want, as long as it is ethical. Next, what about the people who say, I don't judge. Boy, we hear this a lot. That, that This is a dumb phrase. I'm going to explain why. Why I think it's dumb. So let's talk about something that's not ethical. Hedonism. Within communities that embrace unethical hedonism, which is a lot of communities, almost all of them, we hear this stupid platitude repeated all the time. Repeated to the point of absurdity. I don't judge. You get drunk. I don't judge. You do drugs. I don't judge. You have irresponsible sex with complete strangers. Oh, I don't judge. You hang out with criminals. I don't judge. As a single parent, you are out partying late at night, several times a week while your young child is at home. Oh, don't worry. I don't judge. And what's happening here is that people are turning off the part of the brain that makes moral assessments. And people make really bad decisions and hurt themselves and others because they turn off the part of the brain that allows them to make moral judgments about people and behaviors. You do not want to turn off that part of your brain. It is there for a good reason. In fact, you want that part of your brain to be well exercised. So if you ever find yourself saying this, ask yourself seriously if there's a more ethical way for you to partake in whatever hedonistic uh, activities and things are on offer and are being indulged in by the people around you. So moving towards the conclusion here, let's talk about conscious hedonism. Obviously, we all derive pleasure automatically from things like alcohol, partying, sex, and chocolate. However, you can actually train your mind to extract pleasure from other things. I'll give you a couple of examples. 
Dual and back. This is a weird one. This is a brain training game that I play on my phone. It's been demonstrated in a bunch of studies to upgrade the amount of RAM your conscious mind has to solve problems. It's also kind of a mindfulness practice like meditation because it forces you to stay 100% focused on the present Training dual and back for 10 minutes a day is probably one of the best things you can do for your mind, but it is boring. In your first session, you play dual and back, you'll, you'll think to yourself, there is no way I can do this for 10 minutes total, let alone 10 minutes every day. But I have done this brain training extensively. In fact, once I did it for three months without missing a single day. And it is something that certainly started out as being an unpleasant chore for me. But over time, I trained my mind to derive pleasure from it. And in the article, I do link over to some places where you can get the dual end back brain game that I really like, the one I recommend. Next, writing. Many people dread writing, facing the empty page and having to produce something uh, artistic or insightful or informative out of it. Writing used to be difficult for me, but I've trained myself to really enjoy writing. And now it's something that I do all the time. It's a regular part of my workday and I really enjoy it. I've produced over a thousand articles at this point, uh, along with two books that have reached thousands and thousands of people and being able to produce, being able to have a, a tome of work out there and get feedback from other people and hear from other people about how it's uh, how they've enjoyed my writing, how it's helped them out. Ah, that is something I derive incredible pleasure from. I'll, next, I'll mention green tea, which is actually what I've been sipping on as I've been recording this podcast. I started drinking green tea, boy, it must have been about a decade ago, and it doesn't taste amazing. <laughs> it's not soda. It's not 7-Up. But as I kept reading and learning more about how healthy green tea is, the taste got better and better for me. And now I enjoy the taste. It's pleasurable for me. So as a final takeaway, I hope you will remember that we can train our hedonism mechanisms to respond to different stimuli. Again, important point, we can train our hedonism mechanisms to respond to different stimuli. Let's say you smoke cigarettes or you know somebody who smoke cigarettes. Did you know that you can train yourself to enjoy exercise as much as you enjoy cigarettes? And that might sound crazy, but just look at how addicted some people get to exercising. Let's say that you are a TV series 
junky. You uh, voraciously consume whatever is the the newest uh, spell binding uh, Netflix or serial serial series that they come out with. You can train yourself to derive a consummate pleasure from watching documentaries or reading autobiographies. And what is the variable? What, What makes this happen? I think that there's two main variables, which are time and secondly, what I like to call ego investment. So time is just practicing the habit you want to derive conscious hedonism from consistently and persistently. And the life hack for this is an app that I really like called coach.me. It socially engineers you into practicing habits with scary consistency and it tracks them for you. And at the time that I had written this article, I had done 110 days without missing a single day of doing push-ups thanks to this app. It, it For some people, not for everybody, but I think for a lot of people who, who try it, who commit to it, who use it, this app can condition you to be quite uh, consistent with the good habits. Next, ego investment. You don't have to practice a good habit 21 times before you start to have an increasing awareness that you're objectively becoming a better human being as a result of it. The more you see yourself improving, the more your identity and ego get invested in a particular habit, and the more you'll derive pleasure from this habit. For example, uh, CrossFit is a physically grueling series of exercises. I've, I've tried it a couple of times, and no one who tries it for the first time would describe it as pleasurable, but CrossFit practitioners grow to really enjoy it. They are so invested emotionally because of the physical and personal development that results and the positive feedback from the people that they do CrossFit with. And a more recent example of the ego investment thing for me, a little while back, I started using this app called Heavy, which is this gym tracking app. I would, in the past, I would just use my Evernote to keep track of the lifts, weight, and sets that I was doing in the gym. But I was recommended the Heavy app. And it's this pretty intuitive app that does a good job of tracking your uh, workout performance, showing you how you've improved over time. But This app does a really clever thing, which is at the end of your workout, when you mark the workout completed, it prompts you to take a selfie of yourself. And then it, uh, and then it puts the selfie through a little photo editing, uh, algorithm thing that they've got. And it produces this little, uh, it's like a little JPEG report that you can share around on the internet that has the picture of you after you've just finished your workout looking uh, sweaty, accomplished, a little bit more swole. And then it states 
how much you've lifted in that workout, how many sets you did, and how much time you spent working out um, there on your image. I'm going to include a few of these uh, images of mine in this uh, blog article. It, it really is a pretty good little, uh, little JPEG brag that their app automates for you. Like for me, my workout that I did yesterday, I lifted a total of about 10,000 kilos over the course of a 90 minute workout. And apparently 10,000 kilos is about how much a truck weighs. And so it, so it says, you lifted the equivalent of a truck. And then it's got a photo of you along with that. It really is a ego investment kind of thing. And that has made my workouts more pleasurable. And I've been using that app a whole lot more consistently because I get that, I get that ego reward at the end of my workouts. So I'm at my conclusion here. And this is the bottom line. If you are willing to go through a few weeks of awkwardness, or it might end up being couple of months of awkwardness. It kind of depends. If you are willing to step out of your comfort zone for some time and track the ethically hedonistic activities that are replacing your old bad habits, it is totally worth it. So I hope that this uh, breakdown here on ethical hedonism, which has been a uh, guiding underlying uh, principle of mine for quite a while now, I hope that this is something that will sink deep into your unconscious mind and get you thinking a little bit more about maybe what uh, habits or practices, behaviors, relationships, etc., what kind of things you might want to dump, get rid of, cut out in lieu of those long-term sustainable kind of things so that you can enjoy pleasure, enjoy lasting pleasures. And I just thought of another example of this. We were talking about food earlier and Food is a major source of pleasure for me. My, my wife uh, will often comment on uh, me being just such a voracious lover of good food. And last night, we ordered this really delicious pizza here. My wife found the best pizzeria in our city, and they make this organic einkorn pizza that is just, ah, it's just to die for. And so I had a whole one of those and then I enjoyed this uh, European style dark beer that was great and had a glass of red wine along with that. And then we watched a really fun movie together. It was a night of uh, total hedonism. And then we had sexy time after that. It was a lot of hedonism packed into a couple of hours there. But pizza like that, I indulge in that pretty infrequently. That is like a once every two months, once every three months kind of thing for us. And then booze, I am limiting my booze to one or two drinks 
a week at this point so that I can keep my sleep quality really high and then just for, for general health as well. And then today, because I indulged a bit last night, what I'm doing today is a 24-hour fast. I'm uh, not eating anything today. I'm just uh, drinking liquids. And then when dinner time rolls around, I'll enjoy dinner this evening. So I enjoy the pizza, the beer, the wine, enjoy all that with my wife, really enjoy it with no regrets whatsoever because I have a general habit stack and I have a lifestyle that is more than making up for that particular indulgence. And I think that's a pretty great way to live. If you agree, I hope that you will drop a comment or shoot me a message anywhere on social media letting me know how you are practicing ethical hedonism because I'm always curious about different ways that people that people do this. Sometimes there's real, real clever things that people uh, clue me in on. So yeah, do try this one out. Drop me a line. I'm Jonathan with Limitless Mindset. Looking forward to a continued conversation with you.